Listeners, thank you so much for subscribing. We have an important announcement to make. World Policy on Air is going on hiatus for a few weeks. When we return, we're going to take the show in a new direction. So stay tuned. Exciting things are on the way. Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted January 19th, 2018, we consider The Spirit of Standing Rock, a photographic account of largely indigenous opposition to a North Dakota oil pipeline and its continuing legacy, as featured in WPJ's new winter issue. We'll also spotlight other highlights of that issue, cover line Native Voices, about indigenous peoples, their problems, protests, and progress around the globe. Podcast producer Isabel Vasquez here with excerpts from The Morning Brief, a daily digest of national security news from the Center on National Security at Fordham Law and supported by the Sufon Group, available at centeronnationalsecurity.org slash subscriptions. Twin suicide bombings rocked Baghdad on Monday, killing 38 people in the deadliest attack since Iraq declared victory over the Islamic State last month and raising fears ahead of national elections planned for May. Senior Afghan officials said on Sunday that meetings were underway in Turkey between their government and representatives of the Taliban, although the insurgents denied that any talks were taking place. Video footage of the meeting was posted online on Sunday by Tolo Television, one of Afghanistan's leading private networks. South Korea pressed ahead with talks to include its northern neighbor in the next month's Winter Olympics on Wednesday. But Seoul's allies, including the U.S. and Japan, are voicing concern Pyongyang may be using the talks to buy time to pursue its weapons program. The United States military has moved more firepower to the region, and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson warned of complacency at a Tuesday summit in Vancouver, where top diplomats from the United States, Japan, Canada, and the United Kingdom were in town to discuss North Korea. Iran this week freed 440 people arrested in Tehran during anti-government protests, amid continuing uncertainty over how many were detained around the country. listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Amid snow and wind, flame and smoke with Indian drums, feathered hats, an American flag and final prayer, the last contingent of self-declared water protectors, indigenous and otherwise, slogged out of the Ochati Shakowin camp near North Dakota's Standing Rock Reservation. It was this past February, just one hour before the federal and state-mandated evacuation deadline to end the embattled, defiant, but ultimately defeated half-year pipeline protest by thousands of tribal members and their allies. By May, oil was coursing through the much-debated, decried, and delayed Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAP, but a spirit of unity and activism continues among many Native American tribes involved and their supporters around the country. Solidarity in Standing Rock is the headline pictorial feature in the portfolio section of World Policy Journal's new winter issue. 
The photographs and accompanying essay are by Josue Rivas, an award-winning indigenous documentary photographer, cinematographer, and film director, who sees the protest there as, quote, the beginning of a new chapter for humanity. And we talked about it recently for this podcast. Josue Rivas, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me on your uh, podcast today. I do want to say that uh, um, that introduction, you know, you uh, you talked about uh, the fact that they were almost defined, you know, or ultimately defined. And I think that really touches on this question um, when you talk about, you know, this this whole movement of, of people standing rock coming together, indigenous and non-indigenous. It was really a victory, I think, at least in my perspective, too, um, because a lot of the times we you know we forget about the fact that we're we're human you know and i think that's where i want to start is it's the the human aspect of this whole um this whole movement and what i really witnessed um especially through through photography and you know vicious storytelling um and for you know by being in the camps for for a long period of time um i saw the fact that humans are we're, we're quite complex, but uh, when we really come down to it, there's a simplicity to us, um, especially when we start understanding the elements around us. And I think that uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the beauty of, of this new chapter that we talk about, about humanity, or at least I talked about in my essay, really touches on the fact that we're all indigenous to this earth, and that every human being has indigenous um, ways going back to their ancestry, wherever you come from. And at Standing Rock, folks were actually practicing those things. And what I mean by that is that we had a sacred fire um, right in the center of the of the Chattisha Coin Camp and, in, and on the other camps as well. And in that sacred fire, you know, that 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 connection and that respect we have for that fire, it was a thing that um, really guided a lot of folks, I think, to to kind of reconnect with their ways of, um, you know, just being with the earth. You know, those simple ways of just uh, reconnecting through the elements, I guess you can say. Um, so when I say that the beginning of a new chapter for humanity, I really mean that is that folks came together, uh, of course, for the opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline, but I think, you know, in a bigger scale, it was an epicenter. It was uh, almost like a vortex, I guess you can say, where when you enter the camp and you, you know, put in a good intention when you you know, you went there for some reason, you know, and, and you got there, you will really start transforming. And, you you know, the, the best of you and the worst of you will come out. And what I mean by that is that there was a lot of folks that were, you know, were able to really expand on on the healing process and then also their relationship with the earth. Um, I think that a lot of times we forget about that. I was interested in your essay. You you talk about the this indigenous view of man's relation to man and uh, to nature, and the way it affected your photography in general, and so importantly at Standing Rock. Say a little about that. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I started this journey, and and now that I look back in retrospect, especially through my photography, you know, I I was there for seven months, and it took uh, not took. And again, I like to speak in a way that, you know, that really emphasizes what I'm trying to say. I created, um, I, I don't like to say the word taking photographs, I like to say creating photographs. Um, I created images with, you know, with the intention of of previous ceremonies that I had done with Lakota folks. So, so a little, a little um, you know, story behind that is that I, had, I have an uncle, you know, a spiritual uncle who, 
introducing me to to the Lakota ways, you know, to the ceremonial ways of the Lakota. And I had been practicing for, for two years before even, you know, anything in Standing Rock happened. And a lot of those a lot of those practices and a lot of those um intentions that were set on those ceremonies actually were the tools that uh, that guided me through through this whole process of documenting the um you know, the opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline in the Standing Rock movement in general. So what I mean by that is that you know, a lot of these um a lot of these folks in, in native country, you know, in Indian country, they call it. Um, they've been practicing a lot of, a lot of, um, how can I say, a lot of ways with nature. You know, that that is, you know, the 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 truth of it all is that um, folks are connected to nature in a way that we we kind of forgot in a lot of different cultures. Uh, so when I photograph that connection and you know just entering the the camp for example and, and and putting down tobacco as a as a gesture of acknowledging the land and acknowledging the ancestors that were there before me and you know just asking for permission in a way just saying hey i'm here you know this is my offering um the land almost kind of and it might sound kind of crazy but the land almost kind of like opened the doors for me um there were times where I could have gotten shot in the head by, you know, by Morton County Sheriff's uh, rubber bullets. And there was just really specific times, you know, where I could have been in complete danger and, and you know, it could have gone really bad. But, but somehow the, there was something that told me, like an instinct almost. It was like, hey, you need to go now. Or, hey, you know, you, maybe you don't, you, you don't want to go there today. And there was this kind of like guidance. And that really allowed my photography, I think, to, you know, because when you're taking, a, you know, creating an image, you're you're pointing the camera to where you wanna, what you wanna, you know, emphasize, right? And a lot of the times that, that camera was um, was guided by, not, I wouldn't say like necessarily like a spirit, but it was definitely a force that I wasn't fully aware. of. It seems to me that that uh, instead of taking a picture of something or somebody or somebodies, uh, you were participating in, with them in the process of creating that photograph, and that sort of was the embodiment of the the kind of relational uh, philosophy that uh, that your uncle had sort of passed on. Yeah, definitely. I think, and I, and I, and I do believe in that. And you know, he opened also the doors in in the eyes for me to see how. How and, and and when we document things as a journalist? I mean, it's really this this bigger question actually that I'm battling when, right now, and and really trying to better understand is it's you know you saw at least I personally saw when you know when the hundreds of journalists came to Standing Rock and they like you know they were ready because they're like this is a new story this is gonna you know this is huge news right now I need to you know take photographs and and do all these different things um, and then you. You saw that we uh, we actually had a protocol, you know, uh, orientation going on at the camp, where folks were kind of training a way to uh, decolonize their approach to photographing indigenous folks, especially this because this was, you know, a lot of people don't understand that this was actually a ceremony, that all the whole camp um, movement, you know, the whole yeah, the whole thing started as a ceremony uh, with that sacred fire, so the folks in the camp, you know. When it was smaller, they they saw it as a you know this is a ceremony where we come and pray, and as he started growing to the tens of thousands of people, or the th- thousands of people, then it really kind of got out of control. So you know you would just see folks coming in and out and trying to just 
you know, take the photos of the tipis, take the photos of the horses and the feathers without realizing that there was a process to it all, you know? Um, and I think that that's, for me personally, you know, I, I don't, I don't blame other folks because that just, you know, that's a lack of education that we have in our industry really. But um, I think that for me, it allowed me to go from the inside out. So I wasn't just like, I need to take a photo of somebody with, you know, with a you know headdress, you know, like, for me, like, oh, I was like, no, you know what? Like, that person earned that headdress in a way that I haven't earned a headdress. And if I really want to, you know, create an image with that person, I need to really ask them. And not even just ask them, like, hey, can I take your photo? It's more of, like, an internal thing, you know? It's your intention. It's it's being one with your subject, in a way. And and I think that, for me, that's really where it's at. And, and that's what I'm trying to shape now. It's like, where do I go from here? You know, am I really a journalist? Or what am I? What are some of your favorite photographs from that early period of building and bonding in the camps? Well, I think you know there's a lot of images that that have stuck with me, um, and and there's some images that we you know through social media um, sharing uh, when you know they they became kind of like an iconic image for 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 the movement. You know, not 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 because they were mine necessarily, but because the, the moment and the image created, uh, you know, uh, an evoked an emotion that, that really represented what was happening at that moment. And I think that, so I have two favorite ones, if, as you can say. One of them is the image of um, this random person that I have no idea who they are. And they were walking towards me during this, um, during this, this uh, winter um, storm. And I literally just pulled my camera out and and just kind of shoot from the hip. <laughs> and it was this automatic reaction that I had. And it took just a couple of images. Um, and and yeah, when you, when I went back and looked at my you know at my at my images, it was I couldn't see their face, I couldn't see anything. It just looked almost like a spirit. Um, mm. And then that was really interesting because. Again, you know, I, I I photograph a lot of concerts and I photograph a lot of action stuff and a lot of protests and things like that. So I understand that whole process of, you know, taking that you know that that image that is or creating that image that is um, kind of spontaneous. And and I think that that was one of those images that was really spontaneous and and it kind of it, it actually was underexposed and it, it came through afterwards. See, that makes any sense. So when I look back into you know to my computer and started editing. I found this image that was a little darker than usual, and then I, I pulled it out and, and used light, you know, in a way that's kind of interesting, used light to bring it up and the exposure, and, and then it appeared. Um, so that's one image. And, and the other one, I think, is it's the one before, you know, a few minutes before the um, federal and, you know, and state and local uh, law enforcement enter the camps and, and, uh, and remove folks from the camps, and that's the one where, where the whole group are praying, they're praying on, you know, on the prayer walk, they're going and leaving the camp. Um, there's just a lot of emotion in that, in that image. And I was actually live streaming and, and creating the image at the same time, which was really interesting because I was like, you know, my whole body was full of stuff um, and it was really cold. And again, these are things that now looking back in retrospect, um, I feel really happy because a lot of these images are going to be, are going to be, uh, seen by people in the future, you know. 
I found it interesting, I mean, given the history and, and the philosophy, uh, that even before Standing Rock and even before this very contemporary pipeline project, you learned from your medicine man uncle about a distant early warning of DAP. Uh, talk about the black snake prophecy, uh, where your uncle talked about it and, and how he tried to prepare you for it. Black snake being what one could construe as an oil pipeline long before such a thing ever existed. Completely, yeah. This, this, you know, this prophecy was... Um, was I was told about it uh, while I was at a Pioneers Conference in 2015 uh, out in San Rafael, California, and um, my uncle was showing some some of the work that he does with folks that are dealing with PTSD and and trauma and you know and addiction through he, he helps them through indigenous ways you know through indigenous ceremonies um, specifically Lakota. So he told me you know he was just telling me hey nephew you know one day there's gonna be a Really soon, there's gonna be a black snake coming through, you know, through our through our lands, you know, through our territory. So, want you to start preparing for for this. And um, and I did honestly, I didn't really take it as much. I was like, okay, uncle, you know, like that's awesome. Um, then things started happening where, um, well, the the black snake prophecy, you know, it comes from many different perspectives in indigenous communities, and actually in many different communities, they, they talk about this black snake coming from the north that will uh, basically pollute, you know, the land and, and, the, and the peoples. And, and with that pollution and with that darkness, in a way, it will uh, be the end of the time, you know, or be the end of our times as humanity. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of, especially in, in communities in the Midwest and, you know, folks that are more closer to, you know, to the, um, you know, to these pipelines and that are closer to the uh, tar sands up in Canada, they understand that that these resources have to stay under the earth. Like they're not meant to come out. That makes any sense. Like it wasn't intended for the earth to be extracted from. So when they talk about the black snake, they talk about the the perspective that this this snake will, you know, and, and they do break. We all know the pipelines break. I mean, they just broke in, you know, in South Dakota, you know, the Keystone. Uh, it's a Keystone pipeline, not a Keystone XL, but Keystone, I just did, a, you know, just had a spill and all these things that it's kind of like preventing in a way. It's like Native folks are, you know, through a more mystical and yeah, prophetic way of saying, hey, check it out. If we don't, if we don't stop this, we're going to see the darkest of times in our country. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a thing that we don't really listen to. Um, and I think we should probably start listening to on November 20th, 2016, you write, everything changed. Talk about the violence that erupted at that point, uh, how you saw it, how you covered it. Definitely. Um, well, at this point, um, it was, you know, there was an evolution through, through the movement of Standing Rock, I think. And um, my, my photographs, like I said, going looking back in retrospect, I see a lot of that, even, even in the, in the um, visuals of it all. The, the darkness started to creep in. And, and by the darkness, I mean that, you know, folks were, um, a lot of the trauma that the, the indigenous peoples and peoples in general, you know, when I talk about indigenous folks, I mean everyone, um, every human being. I think that we as peoples have major trauma and sometimes that trauma uh, reflects on our actions, right? And um, 
we don't know how to, you know, get it out. And, you know, when November 20th happened, there was a time where people at the camps, were, they were ready to, to shut this pipeline down. You know, they were ready to say, hey, check it out. You know, there's, we need to stop this. You know, everybody agreed on that. And unfortunately, the state of North Dakota and, you know, law enforcement didn't, didn't see it that way. You know, they, they, they saw this, you know, as a way to protect, I feel, to protect a, a corporation, you know, from, from going through with the project. So what happened on November 20th was um, it was catastrophic, I think, because that's when I saw. That's the first time I ever felt in my life. I mean, I've seen some really bad things in my life and documented some really bad things. But this is the first time in my life where I saw and I feel sad for humans because, you know, the water cannons that were used on water protectors that night, the amount of rubber bullets that were shot and the amount of people getting hurt by these things um, really pierced, I think, in a way, the spirit of the camps and the people in the camps. Um, I don't know if you've seen the images, and I think there's a few in, in, our, um, in the issue that, that, we're, that we're releasing, but some of these images were, um, even though they were so dark, they had a, a, inside they were filled with hope. And I think that's where everything changed, like I said, from light to dark. And then all of a sudden, that, that winter time came and, and everything became dark. But, but there was still light within those images. There was still light within the people. And unfortunately, a lot of these folks were not ready for, for the winter. So, you know, a lot of folks broke. And, and I think that's where everything changed, as far even, you know, visually and then also on the ground for me. Well, of course, you had to focus on what was happening at that moment, but you also say you saw history repeating itself. In what way? Well, uh, you know, for, for this, for this uh, specific answer, I think that I really need to take it back, you know, all the way to, to our history as indigenous peoples, and uh, specifically in the Western Hemisphere, you know, in the so-called America um, continent, because... A lot of folks don't understand that, and until today, we don't understand that this, this land was populated by other folks before colonization or no pre-contact. And, and, you know, and, and a lot of folks say, you know what, well, those folks came from somewhere else, right? Like the Native Americans came from somewhere else. And, you know, that's a good case for something, you know. But what I really want to emphasize is the fact that um, the colonizer, or the colonizer became the colonizer. So like a lot of those folks that came from Europe, um, they were, you know, they were being persecuted, right? They were being, you know, um, they were being, in a way, taken, trying to taken away from their ways. And when they came here, they, you know, a lot of those folks applied those same methods of colonization and really about taking, you know, that I, I think that when it comes to history, we really need to look beyond the Christopher Columbus and beyond the... Uh, you know, the perspective and the history that has been told to us from the, you know, perspective of, of the colonizer. Um, when you go into Native communities and you really spend time with them, they see this, um, this pre, you know, pre-contact and then after contact. And then after all of that, you know, the Trail of Tears, for example, um, you know, the massacre of Wendini, and even the, you know, the occupation of Wendini in the 1960s, all these things are things where you see how a government 
and not just a government, but also the mindset and the spirit of the people want to keep certain folks in a, in a certain way. You know, they, we want to keep them and we want to use those resources, um, the land. It's always about the land and also the peoples, you know, in, in their ways. Um, and I think that that's what I mean by repairing itself is that standing rock will go back, will go down in history and, and you know, mark my words, in 10, 15, 20 years, we're going to look back at this and we're going to realize how, how horrible it was for um, for us as, as humanity, you know, that the way that we treated this water protected. And we're going to look back at this and realize that we needed to have um, supported these folks. And, and we're going to say, you know, hopefully next time we don't, we don't, we'll stand up with everybody. Look, and I think that right now, right now, that's the time, you know, we're going to be standing up as people. Looking further ahead than 15 or 20 years, you write that you hope your images are a legacy for the next seven generations. Why that number? And, and what kind of a wake-up call do you see uh, for the indigenous? Definitely. So, I, you know, I, I, before, before spending a lot of time, you know, with my uncle and really trying to learn about the Lakota ways, because I might, you know, I want to be clear, I'm not Lakota, I'm, I'm Michika Otomi, which is from the indigenous people of Mexico. Um, so for me, learning about the seven generations is this prophecy that, you know, the, the seven generations from, from us, from my generation, um, they said in the next seven generations, it's going to be a group of, of young people. You know, the young people are going to rise up and they're going to take humanity in a different direction. And Indigenous folks think, and especially Lakota folks, talk about life a lot in the seven-generation way, meaning live in a way that lives a better world for the next seven generations. Or, you know, act upon knowing that there's going to be great, 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 great grandchildren of yours that are going to live on this earth. So live like that. So that, that's what I mean um, when we use the term seven generations. At least personally, I was thought that it is for you know, for us to remember that there's going to be folks way ahead of us in the future that are going to be looking back at us, at this generation that we're living in. Um, so when I talk about my work, you know, it's Standing Rock was really, it was really, I saw it as, as an opportunity for indigenous voices to, to rise to the front, not just of not just of, you know, social media engagement and, you know, social media, you know, shares and stuff like that, but really to, to enter the, the paradigm, the new paradigm of journalism that I think is coming because I do feel like it's coming. There's, you know, we, we've seen that more and more we've seen more people of color telling their own stories and we've seen more women, you know, telling stories. We're seeing a more diverse way of practicing journalism and indigenous folks are at the forefront of that, I think, um, in a lot of different ways because it's, it's always like that, man. In the United States, there's always people doing the work, but, yeah, we we don't see them. You know, they're not visible. And right now, folks are starting to become more visible. So in, in, uh, in seven generations ahead for me, I hope that those future journalists or, you know, those future storytellers look back at us and say, Wow, I, you know that body of work from Standing Rock was it was fundamental for us to realize how to document these communities or how to document these struggles, you know. Um, 
And that's kind of my hope because this is historic stuff. You know, we don't realize it right now, but we'll realize it in the future. And and I hope that my my images, you know, hold on to the spirit that they have in them, and he you know he expands and it really opens people's hearts. I don't think that um I don't think that we're separate from each other. You know, even politically or you know from backgrounds, you know, ethnic backgrounds or whatever. I don't believe in any of that um, as a as a as a truth as a as a truth of who we are as people, you know, as human beings. We're we're something more than that. Um, so I think that my call to action or my you know what I will leave folks with it will really be about um, knowing that we're gonna disagree with in a lot of things and that kindness is going to be the, the tool that is gonna really bring us all together and to also um, speak up because for a long period of time we've been we've been told that we have freedom, you know, and, and I pretty personally think that that's a lie. I think that, you know, for example in my situation I, I wasn't I didn't go out there to stand in rock only as a journalist. I went out there knowing that this was about humanity. And I think that everybody needs to start thinking about their life in those terms. You know, look back to your humanity when you act upon anything. Josue Rivas, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Josue Rivas is an award-winning indigenous documentary photographer, cinematographer, and film director. His work aims to create awareness about issues affecting Native communities and to amplify the voices of all those in society's shadows. He is a 2017 Magnum Foundation Photography and Social Justice Fellow and founder of the Standing Strong Project. For the new WPJ Winter issue, he contributed the portfolio section photo feature, Solidarity in Standing Rock. Also featured in the new winter issue, cover line Native Voices, you'll find articles on the long struggle to develop a UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights, on colonialism and climate justice in the Caribbean, and on rediscovery of native roots in Norway. Also reports about India's pressure on the Rohingya refugees, Portugal's bust and boom economic prospects, Nigeria's growing cinema industry, Nollywood, and much more. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Jessica Laudis, Managing Editor Laurel Jerombeck, Podcast Producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.